the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. The show all about diving into the mess, the tense, the gray, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, and also the stuff that we have in common, the stuff that's sort of in the ordinary space of what it means to try to live this thing called life. And our hope is uh, that you would engage with us. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. You can find all the previous shows, plus we're podcasted. And uh, carrier pigeons are coming out next week. <laughs> Here uh, they come for your enjoyment. And <laughs> it, I, I feel like we say this every Friday. I kind of can't believe that Friday is here again already. Is that just a normal part of adulthood? I think so. You know, in school, you'd be all excited, like, "Oh, it's Friday weekend." But pastors were like, "Uh oh, that's true. <laughs> uh oh, Friday's the uh oh day." <laughs> here it comes. I remember like getting my first ministry job, and people always wanted to go away, like on camping trips. They're like, "Hey, you want to go on this weekend trip?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure, as long as I can be back Saturday night." <laughs> people are like, "Yeah," they just stopped inviting me altogether. Yeah, but, it's always the hard part, right? Like with my wife and I, if we go out with people on Saturday night. Or we go to like family's house or something at yeah. like eight o'clock, your mind starts going like Totally. Can we go home soon? And everyone else is like, Hey, Saturday night, let's go. And you're just like, No, this is not a relaxing. In fact, I remember talking to a pastor, uh, my best friend's dad was our pastor growing up. And uh, I talked to him afterwards after he retired and I said, Hey, like, what do you enjoy most about retirement? And his literal first phrase was, I got my Saturdays back. No kidding. Yeah, isn't that wild? Because being a pastor for so long, you kind of lose your Saturdays a little bit. And then that makes sense. Can I put you on the spot with a question? Yeah, go ahead. What's the latest that you typically stay out on a Saturday when you have to preach on Sunday? Oh, I would say it's hard to answer because we don't stay out late ever anymore. <laughs> oh, is that just in general you don't? Yeah, I'd say unless it's something really special. I try to be home by 9.30, 10 o'clock probably. See, that's about where I'm at, and yeah. I I wasn't that guy. I was the you know stay out all night guy for a long time, and then I just can't. I can't let myself do it anymore. I mean, I am 41 now, so most <laughs> nights I'm in by a much earlier You day, keep so. saying that you're 41 like it's 91. That's Some 41. Days, man. 40 is <laughs> the new 20, man. Well, here's a uh, story from Christianity Today, and um, the, the headline's a little churchy, I think, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think the content is super timely and really important for us to grapple with. Uh, it says, be fruitful, challenging yourself to abide in order to bear more fruit. What, what, what's that all about? Would you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, it's out of John 15, and Jesus says, Abide in me and bear much fruit. And this article is by Ed Stetzer. And what he kind of gets at here is um, that 
one of the things he gets at is that we need to be looking at our ministries, but more than that, just our lives as followers and ask, are we bearing fruit? Yeah. And the, the obvious question is, what fruit are we supposed to bear? Right. Uh, and so you start to think about things like the fruit of the Spirit. Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? But you think of other things like, uh, am I seeing other people come to understand who Jesus is more through me? Mm. And he just asks hard questions. Like, if you don't see that in your life, then there probably needs to be some pruning going on, some questioning that goes on, and some uh, reorienting to say, how do I start to bear fruit in my life? Well, there's two things about this language in particular that uh, jump out at me, too, that one, the call, the invitation is to bear fruit, not produce fruit. Good. Which to our sort of, we were talking about this yesterday, this like accomplishment um, obsession sometimes is tough for us to get our our heads around when it comes to like resting first in our identity in Christ. This idea for me is like, oh, I got to produce all this stuff. Like, no, the the invitation is to bear fruit, yeah. which is a totally different word. The other thing that's fascinating to me is this idea of abiding, right? Uh, in particular, John uses this word a lot, but, you know, the example everyone thinks of is with the vine and the branches. Yeah. And it makes me think of um, tea drinkers. You're a tea drinker, right? Iced tea. I iced don't drink tea. regular okay. tea. Okay, so iced tea. when it comes to tea drinkers, I think there are two different kinds of tea drinkers. Okay. Uh, there are dippers and there are abiders. Yes. So the dippers, if you've seen them at the coffee shop or whatever— are exhausting to watch because they get the cup <laughs> and it's the tea bag. It's like down and up and down and up and down and they swirl it around. And then I they're never like, thought of this. Then yes. they wrap the string around the bag and they squeeze out the extra juice. It's like, it's exhausting, right? <laughs> it's exhausting to watch. But an abider does what? Just plop the tea in and yeah. you wait 60 seconds. You're like, oh, I have, I have tea. Like the idea that when we learn to truly abide, to truly rest in God and who he made us to be and allow, you know, to play the analogy further to allow the, the relationship between the, the teabag and the water to do what it was intended to do, yeah. you'll actually get more done by starting first from a posture of abiding. And that took me so long to, to begin to really understand because, you know, like we were saying, I'm, I, I have certainly uh, a temptation to become accomplishment obsessed. Yeah. And this idea of abiding as the key way that fruit is produced, that we bear fruit, is, uh, is really counterintuitive, countercultural, but I think... So important to to grapple with. Because in John 15, he does say, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Right, he doesn't totally. say you might. He might. Right. He doesn't say you'll be left open to the opportunity. He says you will, be, you will bear much fruit. Um, so, but you, I thought you made a good point before. You said abide is, and fruit, but abide is a little bit of a churchy word. Yeah. Uh, unpack, now I'm going to put you on the spot. Unpack that for us. What does it even look like for a person who's sitting there going, yeah, I'd like to abide more and bear fruit? What does, abide even, what does abiding even look like? I, I heard Tony Evans give this definition. He said abide simply means just to hang out with, to, mm. to, 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 a, to hang out with Jesus, to, to spend time with him. And, you know, that could look different based on your wiring. For some people who are journalers who, you know, I'm endlessly jealous of, I'm not. But that could look like just simply spending time with God while you're riding your bike or during your commute, like just spending time with, hanging out with mm which you and I have both talked about, can sometimes be really hard when our job is preaching or writing or developing right. thoughts that to, to carve out specific time to just rest in, to abide with. And I think it's not just about uh, recovery either. Like, oh, I had a crazy week, now I need to abide. It's yeah. about s- starting from a posture of abiding because that's how we remember what our true identity is. When we that's jump good. right to accomplishment, it's easy to forget that, man, apart from the vine— None of what I'm doing here really matters, so I got to start from that posture of like hanging out, spending time with Jesus. I think that that is is massively important. It me. makes me think of my marriage. Uh, my wife and I, we can accomplish a lot of stuff, like do lots of chores and get a lot of stuff done, all of which are important. 
Uh, but if we're not doing the hard work of just to use this language, abiding with each other, just spending time with each other, being with one another, uh, we're going to feel really dry no matter how great the house looks or how well yeah, right. put together our children are. They're at the very foundation of our marriage is just a growing relationship in which we're enjoying being together. And it's hard to think of Jesus that way, but that's how Jesus describes himself in the Bible, right? Like, right. spend time with me, abide, and uh, in our culture, that could be really difficult to do. Totally. I, I think Stetzer puts it brilliantly. He quotes Thomas Aquinas first, who once wrote, an abuse does not nullify a proper use. He goes on to say, the faulty examples should uh, lead to a desire to do it better rather than excuse for the disobedience that says, well, we're not going to do it due to the bad examples. Like that, I've so often modeled poorly what abiding looks like. Mm. That's not an excuse to keep doing it, but to actually, all right, I want to drive all the more fully towards making that a priority, which, again, easier said than done, right? And making it a priority, sometimes we are like, well, if I make this a priority, what's going to be the result in our lives? And I just remind you again of Jesus' words there in the book of John. Yep. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Uh, abide in me and, and the fruit's going to come. And man, that should be exciting for us. You want to do stuff for the Lord we always talk about? Totally. Abide in him. Totally. Chesterton put it best. He said, if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. I need to put that on my desk. Right? <laughs> no kidding. But it's like it's saying if it ought to be done, it's it's worth doing it poorly. It's better to do it poorly than not at all, to start somewhere, yes. carve out time, make abiding, make resting, make Sabbath a priority. Again, way easier said than done, but something I think worth striving towards. Yes. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about Malcolm Gladwell, someone that uh, I look up to and respect a great deal, and uh, learn a little bit about his faith background and how Uh, He himself became a Christian. That's coming up next on The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Okay, Brian, name that artist. Oh, I do know this. I know. I can see it in your face. I'm a, no, this is more from a kid's movie. I forget which one, though. You don't know the movie or the artist? Then. Nope. nope. A- anything I, else you want to not tell us about this song? I do like to dance to this song. It's good. <laughs> it's good. You do love dancing, more so than I would have anticipated. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show all about diving into the gray and the mess and the stuff that uh, a lot of us have questions about, hopefully creating space for conversation, for dialogue, for us to lean in a little bit rather than retreat or throw stones. And you can join us uh, on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com and all the previous shows are there. And uh, we would just love to hear from you. We'd love to get any feedback that you have and uh, engage with you throughout the week. The movie Shrek. That is from Shrek. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I believe you. I can't verify that, but I believe you. So one of my favorite podcasts, have you ever heard of Revisionist History? Absolutely. Malcolm Gladwell. Yep. He is also one of my favorite artists, uh, authors. So he wrote Tipping Point. Uh Uh-huh. I'm sure you've read Tipping Point. He wrote Outliers. Yep. Uh, And I was unaware until uh, I heard this recently. Did you know that Malcolm Gladwell is a believer? I did know that. Yeah, you did. I did not at all, and and it made me so excited when you hear somebody's like part of the family, <laughs> Look right? One of ours, yeah. Because <laughs> I, if you ask me, what is like maybe top three favorite podcasts that I could ever listen to? It's Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. No kidding. I read, you know, Outliers or Tipping Point, and like my mind is just blown. Uh, and so I don't know if you've ever heard the story about he came how he came back to faith. He was uh, researching his book David and Goliath. Okay. So it's Which called, is great, by the way. Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. 
One of the premises of that book, by the way, so you've read it, but one of the premises of that book is that we always teach the story that David was the least qualified to fight Goliath. Right, and he right. turns it and says, no, he's actually the most qualified. Yes, right. And it's fascinating. It's uh, completely mind-blowing. But while doing that, uh, Gladwell was up in Winnipeg to visit a woman named Wilma Dirksen. Uh, and 30 years before that, the Durkins had ex- the Dirksons had experienced every parent's worst nightmare. Uh, their daughter was abducted and um, and murdered. Oh, gosh. And uh, Gladwell was amazed. She said this, this Wilma Dirksen, and this is the power here, Ian. It's the power of, like, just ordinary people. Because Gladwell goes on to say, I thought these uh, Wilma Dirksen and her husband were just these kind of normal hmm. uh, Midwestern or Canadian-like Almost like there wasn't much to them, right? They're not from New York or L.A. or whatever else. And so he's talking to her. And at the funeral, she says, we would like to know who the person or persons are who did this so that we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing from these people's lives. Wow. She continued, I can't say at this point I forgive this person. Uh, and Malcolm Gladwell went on to notice that stressed in that in that sentence was at this point. Wow. And he writes, I wanted to know where the Dirksons found the strength to say those things. Where do, do where do two people find the power to forgive in a moment like that? And Gladwell goes on to say the answer was their Christian faith. Wow. And for Malcolm Gladwell, he is like as brilliant of a guy, right? Gladwell's yeah. his his intellect and his creativity are mind blowing. Juggernaut, yeah, mind blowing. And these are the guys, quite frankly, you think are never going to become believers hmm. because they they think they're too smart for it. Uh, and even though Gladwell grew up in a Christian home and was familiar with it, he had gotten away from it. Uh, he said, "I've always believed in God. I've grasped the logic of Christian faith. I had just had a hard time seeing the power." And he says, "It's in that moment with mm. this husband and wife who had lost their daughter, who seemed like just two really uh, normal, just normal people." He says, "I'd seen the power. Wow. I saw the power of the Christian faith." And Malcolm Gladwell came back to faith. I love that story. I, you know, it makes me think of um, we had a couple of residents from uh, Nairobi with us at community for I think about six months and we were in the middle of writing uh, a talk and we read all of our talks collaboratively. It's this really cool kind of synergistic experience. You have a, a number of different voices and perspectives in the room. And um, we were debating whether or not to talk about God's specific power in this particular passage or this particular part of the message. Mm-hmm. And uh, my buddy Charles, who's from Nairobi, he says, it blows me away how skittish Christians in the West are to talk about God's power. Mm. He said, in Africa, we're always talking about God's power because we feel so powerless. And he said, in the U.S., you always talk about God's presence, I think, because you feel so alone. Oh, I wow. thought, what That's a powerful. what a, what an incredible observation. But he said, I've seen this in a number of arenas where you guys, you guys shy away from talking about God's power. And I think Gladwell is sharing in this moment this, this juggernaut of an intellectual who who would rationalize? I mean, he he understood cognitively, you know, the tenets of the yep, faith. Yep. But it wasn't until he actually experienced, like somebody living out forgiveness and love and hope in a way that he'd never seen before. Like that for him was a moment of God's power. And I think, mm. man, shame on me for sometimes shying away from that language in particular because I, you know, I don't know how it's going to come across or I don't know how people are going to respond. Right. Malcolm is a prime example of like, no, we we need to. Not only talk about it, but but show it, like model that for the people around us. That that I think is is significant. And, and I think in the West, something that we do is we intellectualize the faith. And so you think to yourself, well, someone like Malcolm Gladwell, 
yeah. he's going to be too smart for this. Like, right, you know, right, right, You often right. think the intellectuals are the least likely to come to faith. And I would never talk to somebody like Matt Malcolm Gladwell because he's going to be able to out-intellectualize me. But that, that Christ got a hold of Malcolm Gladwell's heart powerfully through these two ordinary people I think is just fascinating. Yet it's a story we see over and over and over again. But like you, I have a hard time – uh, believing that God could use my normal story in somebody's life or your normal story or or the little old lady in the church to bring I mean you've told stories about old ladies saying things powerfully almost prophetically in yeah, your right. life it's almost like we not only don't believe that God still works powerfully in and through ordinary people to do extraordinary things but we almost orient our lives as as a way to not even allow him to even have the ability to yeah, do no so yeah no kidding no uh, kidding and i don't know i'm so challenged by this not just encouraged but challenged that somebody at the level of malcolm gladwell is going to go uh, these two ordinary people blew me away because of the power of Christ in their life. Well, and that's that's something that I always want to try to keep in the forefront of our communities too, because a lot of times people will say, "I'll have this neighbor or this coworker, or this family member. If if I could just get you to meet with them, okay. and I would often say, like, Man, you don't need me. You don't have to like bring in the professional pastor. In fact, I think in many ways, ordinary people are far better evangelists. And not, it's not that we're not ordinary people, but people look at us as like religious experts, which we're not. We're the closer in the baseball yeah, game. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> Bringing Mariana Rivera to get that last out <laughs> yeah. to finish but, the deal. But stories like this are such a reminder that, man, it's the it's the guy down the block. It's the person the cubicle over. It's these ordinary conversations like living out sacrifice and love and forgiveness and mercy. I think when people see those things, whether they're intellectuals or not, there's something intrinsic in us that points to that and says, yeah, yeah, I don't know what you call that, but I want more of that in my life. And I think that is such a such a powerful testimony, not only to how we're wired, but like the presence of God moving through someone, yeah, yeah. Uh, even and maybe particularly when they don't have all the doctrinal theological answers. Like, you know, Jesus started off with fishermen and tax collectors, mm. you know, and I think if that's the model, then maybe we maybe it's OK for us to not have every doctrinal corner figured out and to just live a posture of love and sacrifice and mercy. And I think. The world sees that and they think, I don't know what you're about, but I, I want to know more. Yeah, and someone like Gladwell not only sees the power and is surprised by it and blown away by it, but it also, the Christian faith stands up intellectually to a giant of intellectualism right there. Totally. is also really encouraging. Because a lot of times we're like, well, yeah, I know if, if this person's too smart, they'll never believe this. And it's going like, no, this is one of the smartest people I ever listened to. He's blown away by the power of Christ. Yes. And his mind was able to go, no, and this also cognitively and intellectually yes, makes yes, sense yes, yes. as well. I, you're right. That's not only encouraging. That's that's challenging to me that yeah. like God wants to move in and through ordinary people in ordinary circumstances all the time. And I think for me, the challenge of conviction is, do I have eyes to see that? Like, yes. are we open to not just the opportunities you and I when we have a microphone on or when there's lights on us, but just when we're out shopping, when we're out in traffic. Like, can we be a people who are open to that, not only in other people's lives, yes. but in our life as well? And I think, you know, that, I want to see preach. more. I want to see more of that. Yeah, I want to no, see more no of that. No kidding. No kidding. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk to Daniel Huerta, who is the vice president of the Parenting and Youth Department at Focus on the Family. And that's going to be a great conversation. Can't wait to have that with him right here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show designed for all of us to dive in, not only to the mess and the gray, but also just the stuff that we have in common, just our common hopes, our common fears, our common questions, questions that maybe we've asked, maybe that we've not even had the courage to ask. This is for us to hopefully create a space 
for conversation. And we'd love for you to join us in that conversation. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. You can find all the previous shows there, and you can get us podcasted on any platform you so desire. And right now, we have a very special guest from Focus on the Family, Mr. Daniel Huerta. Daniel, welcome to the show. Brian, Ian, thanks for having me on the show. I'm a special person. <laughs> that was quite a setup <laughs> for me, Brian. <laughs> well, we're grateful to have you on. If you don't know, Daniel is the Vice President of the Parenting and Youth Department at Focus on the Family, and in his role... He oversees Focus's initiatives that equip parents to disciple and mentor the next generation so that they can thrive. He specializes as a counselor and spokesperson in the treatment of ADHD, conflict resolution, self-esteem issues, anxiety and depression in children, adolescents, and their families. So you're an expert in a number of areas (laughs) that I think a lot of people probably have a lot of questions about. So my question for you is this. Do you think teenagers in particular get a bad rap? I, re- I really do, and a lot of the things that you mentioned as, as specialties, they're all intertwined, really, when you look at uh, the complexities that go within the family and the child, they build upon one another. Uh, many times, teens that are uh, very anxious end up uh, struggling also with depression and, and vice versa, and it, it has to do with sometimes family dynamics, sometimes other things. And teens in general have a bad rap within culture that they are... Uh, risk takers that are relentless and very irresponsible mm. and the expectations aren't high quite like when David Daniel in the Bible and and, and Josiah were young and they're expecting them to be mm. uh, king and kings and mature right and and that's it's it's a whole different time yeah, Daniel, I, I've got a. Uh, I've just started wading into this teenager world. I have a daughter who's a freshman in high school and is 15 years old, and so we're, my wife and I are figuring all of this out. Um, one thing I have noticed in my daughter's friends and my daughter is that the pressure on them and the anxiety level with them mm. is really high. Like, it's different than even when I was in high school or you guys were in high school. Is Am I right about that? Is that accurate to say about teenagers now? And what can we as parents do about that? You are right on. And <laughs> if we look at just culture in general, uh, the, the, the pressure to keep up with just information and, and schedules, those two things, is, is huge. And I, as we were looking at my son's schedule for next year. He's a freshman as well. And just that alone, looking at all the different possibilities. And it's amazing. And, mm, yes. and, and how that plays out. And then uh, hearing about some of his friends and the, the year-round sports now when, you know, the three of us probably played three sports, maybe four, and we had time to do that. And now you have to specialize and, right. and really be elite in whatever you're going after in order to uh, find room for you, as so it seems. Yeah. And uh, the pressure is felt within the parents, within the home, and also within the team. And just the, the pressures from social media alone with yeah. the conversations and what other people are doing and the fear of missing out is, is one factor. And then you add the many factors of performance and uh, then insecurities and, uh, and then new feelings that are coming on and the feelings of moodiness. One day you feel very much on top of the world. Next day you feel like you just don't have it. And, yeah. uh, and that's a tough place to be. So I know, again, with our daughter, um, kind of she's a freshman in high school, and you, you've you got not only training in this, but you, like you said, you have teenage kids, so you get it from yeah. both ends here. Uh, maybe give the parents out there one or two of your thoughts on social media. 
because, you know, you get the phone and my daughter's asking us, can I be on Instagram? Can I be on this? And it really felt like for my wife and I, we, we kind of didn't really know what the mm. best answer was. Just from your training and, and your, your, what, all the work you've been doing, uh, what would you do with social media and teenagers? Really, first you want to know your teen personality-wise. Some teens can handle social media very well. Yeah. And some cannot. And yeah. you need to know your teen well in that sense. My my son and daughter, very responsible. Uh, and it, it just really naturally in their personality. It's not that we built them that way. They came in uh, pretty compliant, which is wonderful. A, a wonderful gift. You know, <laughs> hasn't taken us to ninja level parenting. But there have been moments of imperfection. And one of the things that I was clear with my children early on was you're not going to get devices until you're around 16. Mm. And, and at that point, we'll see if, if you're ready, if our, if our relationship is ready for that, and if your brain is ready for that, because right now the, are the building blocks to get there uh, where we can develop that and have a good pattern of boundaries and limits so you can handle that. And uh, social media in reality uh, has consistently shown up in research to increase anxiety and depression. So as yeah. parents, we have to pay attention to that research. And Instagram is number one right. in the negative factors that it creates for the mental health of youth. And so maybe maybe your child is able to say no quickly and and is able to handle the, 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 the pressures of having to be on there and, right. and, and respond. And that's hard. The brain just responds to that. That's why it sells so well. No kidding. Well, uh, Daniel, I don't think you know this about Brian and I, but we both started off in ministry as youth pastors. So we we both have a heart for students and teenagers, and uh, we have stories I'm sure that we could share. But what what are some ways for anybody listening that we can start to change the narrative uh, about teens and teenagers, whether it's in our own conversations or on our own social circle? How, how can we begin to steer that ship uh, in a way that not only changes the narrative but also like calls students um, – you know, and speaks life and identity into them, whether we have teenagers or not. Like, what, what are some ways that anyone listening can be a part of that? Yeah, begin to look for the good and what they're doing. Each, each child, each teen has a skill and talent, and they can either use it for good or bad. So help mm-hmm. them recognize what's unique about them, uh, help them accept that as well, and, and to notice what insecurities are preventing them from living those things out. Help them also be aware of how their insecurities are influencing their need for acceptance and, and, and the love of people around them and how they can be influencers rather than the influence. That's good. And, uh, and then expecting the best in teens, uh, maybe asking questions instead of saying, hey, don't do that, is why do you think you chose to do that? That's good. Help me understand what happened there, what you were looking for, what is it that you're mm. really wanting? Because I want to help you. I want to come alongside of you. And that that way didn't work. Let's, let's together find a, a new way to do that. And the more we ask teens and invite them into the conversation, the more connected that, that will become over time, and they will trust the conversation rather than always being told what they didn't do right instead of really showing that they've probably done many things very well, and there are mistakes. There's, there's going to be a lot of imperfections and a lot of learning, and this is about growing up, and yeah. that can be a great goal to, to review with your team. Hey, I want you to live a life that is uh, full and also to be free, mm-hmm. and a lot of things in the teenage years trap you into thinking that is, that is not helpful for your growth as yeah. a person 
and in your relationships, and I want the fullness of that with you. I'm coming alongside you in the same path. Daniel, are you sure that you're not a preacher? <laughs> I mean, that was so that good. Was good. Was that too long? Yeah. No, no, it no, was No, that was outstanding. I, I hope every parent, every Christ follower, every youth pastor, Absolutely. every student pastor is listening. That That is such good content, man. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, people can go to FocusOnTheFamily.com to learn more. Plus, Focus on the Family with Jim Daly can be heard every weekday from 1130 to noon right here on AM 1160. Daniel, thank you for taking the time to thank be with you, us Daniel. today. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much. Yeah, focusonthefamily.com slash parenting will take people directly into the parenting tab, but there's plenty to, to get lost with in there as far as content, and we're also putting out some YouTube videos for people to have a quick engagement with us. Thank awesome. you so much. Awesome. Have a great man. day. Thank yep. you so much. Appreciate it. Well, coming up next on The Common Good, we're going to talk about kids and the need for them to have time to be bored, <laughs> time just spent doing absolutely nothing. We're going to talk about that next on The Common Good right here On AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. A show that we're hoping can engage people of all shapes and sizes, of all walks of life, regardless of where you're at or where you're from. Uh, The stuff that we have in common, the things that we step back and say, oh, I've had questions about that, I've wrestled through that, I've had doubts and uh, confusions, and I think for us, uh, we're pastors, but we're also... Hopefully, somewhat ordinary people, <laughs> average people. Depends who you ask. <laughs> That's a really good point. Depends where you get with I, that. I know the stuff that we tackle. There, you know, there are things that I've, I've still, I still wrestle with. To be honest, and that that is kind of the goal is to not tie everything up with a nice bow all the Absolutely. time or ever, because sometimes stuff is just worth talking about. We'd love for you to join us. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to eleven sixty hope dot com. All the previous shows are there, and uh, we'd love to engage with you in any way that you'd like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been I've been really grappling with this particular idea because so my oldest is uh, 15 months, right? And um, we just brought home a newborn, and so and it was yours, right? It's my newborn. Yes. I think so. We, didn't, guys, like, we didn't find it. We just right? brought home a newborn, like <laughs> like went to a garage sale. Hey, you got a newborn, <laughs> right? Right. It was not clearance. Um, so so Owen, our oldest, is now having to. Uh, deal with like our divided attention, mm-hmm. um, which at times can be a bit of a challenge. He's not quite sure how to express himself yet. And, you know, mom and dad are now also taking care of a baby. Yeah. And I've been grappling with this idea of him experiencing boredom and how quickly I jumped to like, oh, I'll just put wiggles on. Like, let me just put something on yes. to distract you or entertain you. And uh, it seems like this idea of boredom, particularly for our children, um, is a really, really important discipline for them to learn, especially when they're young, because that's the place where creativity is forged, yeah. where they develop skills for self-regulation. And like, what, what's been your? Exp- you're a little bit further down the road. I am in this area with me. How do you? How do you? Uh, how do you deal with this idea of boredom? This is case? actually a really big deal, and one that I struggle the most with with our son. To be honest with you, uh, so I have a daughter who's a freshman in high school. I have a son who's in the fifth grade and a daughter who's in the fourth grade. And my son is so active and always wants to be doing something right. that he'll regularly say to me, like, I'm bored. <laughs> and I just want to be like, like, that's like nails on a chalkboard sometime. Like, right. go figure it out. Right. Because truthfully, when we were young, and I'm going to sound like the old guy back in the day when I was young. Back in the day. I, if I said I was bored to my parents, it would just be like, just go outside. Right. Like, Deal go with figure it. it out. Go yep. in the woods. Go do something. Uh, and but now in our culture we have so many things to fill our boredom and our time, like you said, TV or or throw them their tablet or right, right. or oh well, let me get you into another program. This is the hard one you're going to run into is um, 
especially because, as we talked about on Wednesday, you are a uh, you were raised as a homeschool kid, yeah. in which there's a more time, right? Yeah, right. In the western suburbs where you and I both are raising children of Chicago, uh, the most kids have the opposite problem from boredom. Hmm. They have way too much structured stuff. Hmm. Like sometimes it saddens me. I know of families where I'm like, how does that kid ever actually play with other kids? Because right. you've got them going from soccer to basketball to piano to art class to this and that. And you don't even give your kid a chance to be bored right? or to figure out how to play in their own lives. And, you know, life can be boring sometimes. Yep. Like life can be – sometimes it's like you got to figure it out. And uh, and you're going to see this as your kids get older. There is the the tendency to want to fill their time. Hmm. and But, no, I got to let them just go, and I won't just give them technology to fill it. But then also you'll see the friends around you, kind of the people around you being like, oh, should I put my kid in those four classes they're doing? Like, am I a bad parent if I right. don't do that? And then I'll see you got to be like, wait a minute. No, I don't need my kid in everything. It's it's hard. Parenting in this culture is really interesting. And and the suburbs in particular, uh, it's it's not an easy spot to raise kids. Well, and it's I, I have fond memories, too, of those times where my parents said, just, just go outside and yeah. – what we didn't do was just stare at a tree for a few hours. Right. We created worlds. We we built stuff or tried to build stuff. We invented games. We invented whole storyline. Like it, I know that we weren't the most creative kids on the block, and yet that time of boredom where there was no device, there was no screen, there was no schedule, it actually forced us to think past that initial boredom, right? Where you know I think it's easy for us to sort of just like quickly try to make that go away. And research seems to point more and more that the the less that we give our kids space to be bored, yep. the less crea- creative they are, the less uh, adept they are at problem solving, at thinking critically about themselves and the world. Like giving space for boredom seems to have profound physiological, neurological benefits. And yet you have to kind of get past that barrier where, like you're mentioning, you know, my, my kid goes, I'm bored. Yep. Like that can be really frustrating to the whole family unit that it's easy to just, all right, well then take this tablet, just get out of my face, yes. like just deal with that. And, and I think when we deal with stuff at that level, um, that can be a pattern that we fall into really easily. Yeah. Uh, in his interview with GQ magazine, Lynn manuel Miranda, right. Better known as the guy, uh, who wrote Hamilton. Right. Um, which by the way, I'm taking my wife to see at the end of February. It Good was man. her Christmas gift. So Good I'm man. very excited. It was like, Getting her a Christmas gift that also benefits me. Yeah, it was like, it's like the old Simpsons episode where he gets Marge the bowling ball that says right, Homer. Right, right. Uh, but Miranda says this. Lin Manuel Miranda, Miranda says uh, he credited his unattended afternoons with fostering inspiration. He says because there's nothing better to spur creativity than a blank page or an empty bedroom. Hmm. He's saying it's that space of saying we don't have to fill everything. And sometimes we need to ha- give our sp- ourselves or our kids space to have creativity, have to fill these slots. Yeah, right. That's where we get we learn to be creative and we learn to come up with things and siblings learn to play with each other. Uh, and, man, you're going to find this. Maybe you'll just be you'll be more countercultural. But in the western suburbs, particularly uh, raising kids, this is not the way it's trending. Hmm. To give space to your kids. It's trending to fill your kids' time, fill it, fill it, fill All it. All the time, right. To where they're worn out. So it does take some um, some effort. Yeah. It sounds weird. Like, as parents, we probably need to do a better job making an effort hmm. uh, to empty our kids' schedules a little bit. Yeah, which, I, I again, I imagine is easier said than done. And I, I think about even as I'm, hearing, as I'm hearing you talk 
Like, I wonder if that's why we often have such creative, useful ideas, like in the shower or the couple <laughs> minutes before yeah. we fall asleep. It's because maybe for the first time that day, we're not actually doing anything. Like, I even, if I'm having cereal in the morning, yeah. I'm like, I'm reading the side of the box or I got a newspaper, I'm, re- I'm scrolling on my phone. Like, we, even as adults, are filling every waking moment with consuming data or media of some kind. And right. I'm always amazed at, like, the 10 minutes in the shower can sometimes be a really useful time to like think a little bit outside the box. It forces my brain so true. to think beyond kind of the buzz and the noise. And I'm not good at creating those spaces intentionally in my life, even though I really, really desire them. You know, it's so funny you bring that up. There was a running joke with some of our elders a couple years back that I kept saying, Hey, I was thinking about this in the shower. <laughs> hey, I was, I came, I had this thought in the shower. It's so true. I find myself, sometimes I'll be in the shower and I'll be like, how long have I been in here? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm just kind of <laughs> dreaming and thinking. And yeah. um, it, it's, it's true. We've got to give space. Like, like last week when that polar vortex hit and we couldn't go outside. Right. And we, we all were stuck in the house. Like I felt like it got to a point. There's always that point where you're like, I have no idea what we're going to do. Yep. And our kids get that. They're like, I'm bored. I don't know what to do. And when you push them through that. Yep. Cool, creative things end up happening. They start doing crafts or they go outside and they start making up games and they start doing this. And then you're like, see, they do have this in the – but I think a lot of what we're getting at is in our culture and in our – in this day and age, we generally don't give them the space to push through that. Yep. I think you're right on. And I think in a lot of ways we know that when we experience it, it's good and positive. And yet we lack sometimes the consistent courage – to keep pushing through to do it again and again and again, which is a thing that I'm convicted by that I think we all can learn from, which I think segues well to what we're going to talk about next. Uh, Is contemplative prayer dangerous? Mm -hmm. Evangelicals and the fear of contemplation. That's coming up next on The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Back to the common good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Brian, you're not. You never danced to this song. Nah, this is the way. <laughs> this this isn't your jam. No, that's not how you roll. All right, I'm not okay <laughs> with that. The show designed to talk about not only the stuff that we have in common, but also just common space, the stuff that we're good at, that we struggle with, common hopes, common dreams, common fears. I think one of the things that I find fascinating is how unified we can be mm-hmm. uh, across party lines, across religious lines, across generational lines. At the core. We're probably a lot more similar than we realize, right. and so we want to want to dive into that a little bit. And we'd love for you to join us in that. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to eleven sixty hope dot com, and all the previous shows are there. You can find us on any podcast platform you like. And uh, I've been grappling with this idea as of late, and it kind of segues to what we were just talking about. Um, this idea of contemplation mm-hmm. and how it's not just our kids that struggle with this downtime. I think yeah. as, as adults, we really do too. It's, it's always going somewhere, doing something, even like time in my car is rarely silent. Like it's usually filled with something like, mm-hmm. Oh, I got to make use of this time. If I'm honest, it's usually how I talk about it. Like, Oh, I got to capitalize this, this opportunity. I yeah. got to redeem this time. I had to listen to a book or a podcast. 
I don't know if you're wired the same way, but for me, sometimes I look at my schedule and I think, man, you've packed this full of way too many things. And this idea of contemplation, not only is it something that I, I'm, I'm pretty bad at, but I think uh, historically the Western church has not done a good job of like celebrating or, or embracing very well. Yeah, it brings to mind a couple of things for me. First is like, I, I feel like growing up, uh, in the evangelical kind of sphere, you know, I've always been a part of evangelical churches. You yeah. and I both grew up Christian Missionary Alliance, and uh, the whole, even the concept of contemplation, contemplative prayer, yeah, right, brought with it a feel of like the mystics mm. and like Eastern religion, and right. like, there was always this like, it's it's there's something wrong with it, like. Uh, that and yoga, right? <laughs> like yeah, the two of them right, are bad, right, right, right. and they were like or meditation, right? Yeah. Like it's all bad. Uh, but really, what we're talking about is just this ability uh, to slow down and be quiet and to actually engage in prayer. And I really struggle with that. I I struggle with quiet in my life. Yep. Um, like in the summertime, I try to do prayer walks at a local park and other stuff, and I'll find my mind just going off in many different directions. Hmm. Uh, and then you feel guilty. You're like, why can't I pray? I'm a pastor. Right, <laughs> and then, right, right. Um, and then I also think about our churches, man. Our churches are loud. Mm. Evangelical churches, especially, you know, modern day ones, tend to be really loud. Yeah. And when you, like, when you leave space, I know, like, in our church, when I leave space, after, like, 20 seconds, I'm like, should I close? Should I close? We should be done. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and I just don't think as Western Christian, Western people at all, we, we do well with space and time. And, but yet what we read in Scripture is that oftentimes, you know, be still and know that I am God. Right. Or, you know, in the Old Testament, God speaks as, as a whisper. Yeah, <laughs> as a, right. Uh, and, and you start to see these things, and you're like, I can't hear that whisper. My life is too crazy. Yeah. Like, I, I'm never still. Like, it, it, it's hard. And I think that's why oftentimes I find cards on a table, I find personal prayer difficult. It's, yeah. a, it's a discipline for me. Yeah, I think it's, it's tough, too, because I had the same kind of realization a few years ago um, and I felt like in my heart of hearts, the thing that the thought that came to mind for me was, I think I run from silence because I'm afraid of what I'm going to hear in it. Mm. Like if I really truly give the space that I know God desires for me, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to like the answers that I actually find in my heart, like why I do this thing or why I haven't taken care of that thing. And I I think the the question that maybe is helpful for us to wrestle with is. What does my current pace of life say about what I truly believe to be true about God? Mm. Right. If I believe that God is only happy with me if I'm doing something all the time or if I'm accomplished, if I'm useful to God, then if that's what I believe to be true about him, then that would make sense that I'm, I would live at a frantic pace. If I truly believe that at my core I'm loved, that God knows me and sees me, all my junk included, then that gives space then for silence, for mm-hmm. for stillness that I can turn off at times. And I think it's – it's easy to kind of get caught in this rat race. I remember we did an exercise years ago at my church. We, I said, I'm going to start three sentences, and I'm going to give space for the community to answer. And uh, I, I'm like you. I was, I was full of anxiety about this because yes. I don't – especially when you're facilitating it. Yep. And the three sentences that I prompted were, um, God, you are, God, thank you for, and God, please. Mm. And I honestly, I thought this will go for about 45, 50 seconds, and it ended up taking up – more than 10 minutes of our service because people just participated so fully when we actually gave space for people to not only contemplate those questions or Mm. contemplate those sentences, but to actually place themselves in them. And 
I mean, I'll be really honest. It like brought me to tears because yeah. you're hearing people answer or complete these sentences in very different ways. But when you know their stories, you're like, oh, man, like this guy just lost his job. But he's saying, God, thank you for providing. Mm-hmm. Right. Or this, this woman's in an abusive relationship and she's saying, God, thank you for protecting. You know, there's mm-hmm. this space that, uh, you know, I shame on me. I didn't think it was going to go well. Yes. I thought it was going to be awkward and weird and clunky. And when we made space for contemplation, I was like, oh, gosh, lo and behold, the Holy Spirit moved in a really powerful way. Why don't we do that more? That's really good. I feel like uh, something that all of us probably struggle with, one reason that we don't leave a lot of space for prayer in our lives is um, it's hard to measure. Like, when do you know you're succeeding at it? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, right. It, we all try to be as productive with our days as we can. I can you know, know how many emails I responded to, or I can yep. know how many pages I got in on my sermon uh, it's hard to be like spend an hour in prayer and go like, well, what did that? Pro- I, th- I think that produced something. Yeah. Uh, now sometimes we'll see unbelievable answers to prayer, but not totally. always. Not always, and so it becomes it becomes hard to measure. Like, yeah. I don't know, was that a good use of my time? I'm going to trust that it was, and uh, so it gets it kind of gets a little bit out of our control. And like you said earlier too, when we slow down and disconnect, we start to. You might be scared of what you're, what you start to think about, totally. or what you start to hear, and so I think for all of these reasons, it's like, nope, make noise, fill, 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 and just keep running your life. Well, and even to the way that you just phrased that, was this a good use of my time? Right? Mm-hmm. We think in such obsessively utilitarian terms, like, oh, did I use my time? We even talk about God wants to use you. I sometimes wonder if that's always helpful yeah. because beneath that, it's like, okay, so I'm only God's only interested in me if He can use me. Like, that's really subtle, and I'm probably yep. nitpicking on language here at this point, but, like, contemplation is, like, such a mini-rebellion to the way that our culture runs that when when culture says you have to keep going, you have to keep taking, you yep. have to keep climbing the ladder, Jesus says you can be still, you can abide, you can you don't take from me, you receive. I'm mm. giving it freely to you. That that just is, in so many ways, counterintuitive and countercultural which is exactly why I think we need to do it. It's why we need to create space for it. Yeah, and it's what we talked about before. What does it mean to abide? Yeah, right. Like abide, I always think of like the term of like, I, I always think of abiding as like plugging the lamp in, right? Yeah. And like, uh, but these go hand in hand. This It's fun. There must be something going on in the souls of you and I, because it seems like every <laughs> segment we've talked about today has to do with abiding and taking time and having space and giving our kids space. Yeah. And well, we probably feel a little rushed these days. And so... um I'd give people out there, ourselves included, just a challenge. Like, hey, if you're not a prayer, then maybe tomorrow try praying for five minutes. Yeah. If you're like a person who normally prays for five minutes at your meals and quick, try 10 minutes tomorrow. Yep. What would it look like for a half hour? Go for a walk and just spend it praying instead of listening. See what happens and uh, see what it does for your soul. And and I think that would be a worthy a, a worthy challenge to try to tackle. Totally. And read some of our Orthodox, Anglican, Episcopalian brothers and sisters. I, I think of people like, I know, Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr, Thomas Keating. These, these are people who have written brilliantly yes. on these topics of contemplation and what that looks like. I think we could learn a lot from them, and yeah. I think it expands our uh, our capacity of what not only is possible, but what we might actually find fruitful and really, really enjoy. And I think that's worth spending our time doing. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about the power of the 90-day short-term goal. I know a lot of people have five-year plans, 10-year plans. I want to talk a little bit about what does it look like to focus just on the next three months, God? What do you have for the next three months of my life? We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good, right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good. I feel like we just need to have this soulful piano music just wash over us Let for a second. Go. Yeah, we're practicing contemplation right now. <laughs> <laughs> contemplating why are we playing this song. <laughs> yeah. This is good. This is good. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about diving into the mess and the gray, the stuff that doesn't always have easy answers. Sometimes it does. Maybe sometimes it seems like it does. But when you drill down deeper, you realize things are a little more complex and complicated yeah. because, yeah, life is complicated. So you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com, all the previous shows that suffer there. And we've been talking about contemplation. We've been talking about boredom. We've been talking about what does it mean to like hit pause on life uh, enough to just simply hear what's really going on at the heart level. Like, yeah. What is our current pace of life say about what we believe to be true about God. I find it interesting, and we touched on this in the last time that we were together, last segment. You and I, there, there seems to be a running common theme today of like contemplation and yeah. space. Yeah. And, you know, you've just had a baby. I keep talking. <laughs> My wife's been out of town. I feel like we've been running crazy all week. Right. Sometimes I wonder if this radio show is going to turn into like couch time for us to kind of like <laughs> what we need. Like, I feel like we need some space and just kind of, you know, come reconnection with God. That's good. That's kind of how I preach, too, to be honest. I think totally. The sermons that tend to resonate are the ones that when, when I'm done speaking it, I think, yeah, that sermon was mostly for me. Yes. That's an area that I'm not doing really well in. And uh, I think, so to juxtapose contemplation and boredom, I'm curious, what, is, what does it look like then to set goals? Like, how do you set goals Ooh, in a way good. that are are honoring to who we are, how we're wired, how we're built, that doesn't uh, usurp or dismantle Sabbath and rest and contemplation. But we also want to be good stewards. I think yep. time is a thing we steward like anything. You know, how do you set goals? Do you set goals? You know, we're you know a little over a month into the new year, <laughs> thinking about resolutions and how many people bail on them by the end of January. Yep. Like, what does that look like as a as a pastor, a father, a Christ follower? To, to set godly goals in that way. I'm bad at goals. Man. Are you? I have a lot of notes on my phone and a lot of journals and stuff with lists of things I want to do that have never been done. <laughs> and I always have great uh, uh, admiration for people who are able to say, you know what, I'm going to do this. And then six months later, they do it. But I do think the stat, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's 90% of New Year's resolutions are bailed on by the end of January. I mean, I don't doubt that. And so you're right. They always say the first week in January, you can't find a parking spot at the gym. Right. And right. Uh, everyone's, you know, doing Whole30 or going gluten-free or something like that. And then, you know, everyone has stopped working out by February 1st and they're in line <laughs> right. at McDonald's or whatever. Right. right. And uh, so I do struggle with it. And um, I have a lot of things that I want to do that I don't necessarily accomplish. Uh, and I and I came across this thing from well, Will Mancini. He talks about uh, his advice is uh, ninety day goals. Hmm. So set them ninety days out. And he theorizes that uh, ninety days is like a is like the right amount of time, uh, one quarter of a year. Uh, that kind of is a good rhythm. Uh, and I thought about that because I, we that we do that like in churches and stuff. I have to, in our church at least we often talk about this quarter. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and so he goes through all of this, like you know, John Steinbeck wrote the first draft of the Grapes of Wrath in ninety days, or wow. Mozart composed two piano trios and three other pieces of music in ninety days in seventeen eighty eight. So this just I found this interesting because we always talk about the year and needing to accomplish this, and I think the the. The death knell to goal setting is too big mm. and not having like uh, benchmarks along the way to say, like, I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm right. doing it. 
And instead, it's like, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And then it's like Leviticus. I'm like, oh, no, thank you. Never mind. Instead of having a plan, having some accountability and like persevering and having people to do it with you and bite off chunks with you. So it's not it's certainly not something I'm good at. But I do. I think this 90 day one, I think probably there's something to it. I think I might. I might try to embrace that a little bit, see if it works for me. You know, I think about the 90-day thing, and I think about, uh, you mentioned to-do lists, and, you know, I, I have a pretty bad habit of just, like, writing draft emails and saving them, and those really? becoming, like, my list, which is not, that's not an effective method at yeah. all. But I also thought, I remember reading from Bob Goff a few years ago, and he said, so many people have to-do lists, and very few people make stop-doing lists. Oh, I think wow. in this world of, like, goal-setting, right, it's all these things I want to do and accomplish, I think it's as important to also take honest stock of like what are the things I need to stop doing? Things yeah. that are uh, they're sucking my time or they're they're not they shouldn't be a priority right now, but because it's urgent, I just keep doing it kind of out of autopilot. And I yeah. think I was really challenged by that. What if I'm not knocking to do lists? I'm not even really knocking goals, although sometimes I think um, they can get problematic because what goals don't ask is who am I becoming? Mm. Right? Like so often, at least for me, and I'll just speak to myself. I can I can so easily wrap up my identity and how well I am at accomplishing goals, whether I set them for myself or someone set them for me. Like I'm deeply entrenched in seeing myself through the lens of accomplishing or failing goals, mm. which doesn't mean don't set them yeah. right yeah. at all. But I I less I less frequently for sure am asking who am I becoming mm-hmm. and what are the things I need to stop doing. I think that's as important, if not more important to ask in the next 90 days, yeah. what do I need to get off my plate? What do I need to really delegate? What do I need to just cut out of my life entirely that I've wanted to for a long time and just haven't had the courage to do That's it. good because goals, now that you bring that up, goals are often about what are you going to do? Yeah, right. And if everything's about what am I going to do? I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more. We're going to break. Yeah, We're totally. not going to be able to accomplish that. Hmm. Uh, and also, you know, just because you set the goal, it's... It, uh, a goal is not, is only as good as what you put in place to accomplish it, like yeah, the right. steps along the way. Otherwise, it's just a hope and a dream. Uh, and so thinking about a big goal but then adding steps, that's where this 90-day thing might be helpful. What's the step I'm going to take in these first 90 days? That's good. What's the step I'm going to take in the second 90 days? Uh, so it's more measurable and it's more cut into pieces that you could get your arms around and go – Okay, I'm probably not going to to completely transform my life in a year yeah. like without any plan. But this 90 days, I'm going to work on this part and this. It's probably helpful, but I like that. Who am I becoming, and what am I not going to do? What am I going to stop doing? That's right. pretty good. Well, I think too, it's important. Like we we ask, what is the next right thing to do? I think the psalmist even writes, "What is the next Lord? Show me the next right thing to do." And I've often counseled people who are kind of at their end, right? The bottom has dropped yeah. out, and so they're asking all the huge cosmic questions which we are naturally drawn to like what's this how am i going to deal with this massive issue and i'm amazed at how calming it can be to ask people okay what's the next right thing to do yeah what's the thing this week or tomorrow i think there is some wisdom you know and i've there's some numbers floating around about what how long it takes to form a habit you know the best research i can find says 21 days to form a habit Mm. that to me is much more about the person i'm becoming these are the rhythms that i want to set in place uh in in the years to come and i think that's that's hard when we're when we're just kind of constantly bombarded by all the things that we have to do all the time, and sometimes that's because of our own life stage, and sometimes I think we bring that on ourselves. Yeah. I think our schedules are packed too full because we don't know how to say no. We don't know how to create yeah. a stop doing list. You know? Yeah, uh, and that's I, we thought about the other segment. We we're talking about Bible reading. Uh, it is like we're always like, I'm going to read my Bible every day. Yeah, and you're like, well, that's not a 
probably a realistic goal. If you're not reading your Bible at all now, you're probably not going to read it every day. Right. Um, but to hear that, that 21 days is what it takes to make a habit. How about saying, I'm going to read my Bible for 21 days in a row? Yeah, right. Like, I, I'm going to put it on the calendar. These 21 days, I'm going to do it. Yep. And and then let's see if that forms a habit. And then all of a sudden, like, it goes as opposed to, like, you know, 20, like a whole year. That's overwhelming. So right. I think this is good. I think breaking up our habits, the takeaway is break it up into manageable things. But also think about goals of things I'm not going to do, the stopping. What am right. I going to stop doing in order to give space to become, in order to give space to something bigger that I'm shooting for? Yeah. I think gives you – we want you to succeed out there. I want to succeed in the things that we're trying to accomplish. And uh, I think those are some good, helpful ways to get there. And, and knowing, first and foremost, that the things that we do or don't do aren't who we are, mm-hmm. right? To start first with that place and allow that to inform the people that we're becoming and yeah. allow that to inform the goals that we set and the things that we stop doing, I think is really, really important. Well, coming up next, we're going to take a look inside 37-year-old pitcher Luke Haggerty's improbable comeback story. It's a story I think, Brian, you in particular are going to love That's right here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. show about diving into the stuff that we have in common, the common ordinary space that most of us live most of the time. And uh, you can join us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or at 1160hope.com. You can find all the previous shows there. And uh, we would love to interact with you in any way, shape, or form that you would like. I feel like that music was Phil Collins. Was it actually Phil Collins? I don't know. I feel like that was Phil Collins. <laughs> I feel like it. Phil Collins is one of the few artists that you could actually say something like that with. I just that just feels, that feels like Phil Collinsy. Are you a Phil Collins fan? Not really. Okay, I, I come like either. I, I mean, I appreciate that observation. I yeah. don't know that you're right. <laughs> Josh, give us a nod. Is he? Is that Phil Collins? Josh does not know who that is. Nope, he's nope. not. Hey, go to Facebook and tell us. If you knew that music coming in, go to the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook and let us know. Because I think that's Phil Collins, but I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't put money down on that. That was a good plug, though, by the way. Way to, way to turn that to the... Uh, I'm getting good at this radio thing. Is this Facebook.com? <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> on your mobile device. Here we go. Right, Brian, you were telling me a story about... Uh, well, it's a baseball story. You seem to be a fan of, uh, of the baseball, right? I love baseball. I would say my two favorite sports are baseball and football. Okay. And uh, I've raised my son to be as obsessed as I am. So (laughs) I told my wife, I'm from the East Coast, and so I'm a big New York Mets fan, and I'm a big New York Giants fan for football. And I told my wife, if we're going to stay in the Midwest, uh, I need to put a little bit of money so I can watch Mets games and watch Giants games. So I've got the MLB package and the NFL. And my son and I, all summer, just watch baseball together. That's awesome that you have that with your son, though, right? That you can share. He He really is. is. Oh, he's beyond me. In fact... Not that we're multitasking, because yesterday, I think we through two days ago, we talked about single tasking. Right. But my son just texted me some MLB news that he just saw on the television. Oh, man, I love that. And That's so, awesome. No, we go to games together all the time. It's great. That's uh, a blast. Anyway, I love baseball. And so this story caught my eye. It was on ESPN the other day and when I was watching, and then it's also on ESPN.com, about a guy by the name of Luke Haggerty. You may not know Luke Haggerty. Haggerty was drafted with the 32nd pick in the first round of the 2002 NBA, uh, sorry, MLB draft by mm. the Chicago Cubs. I've heard of them. Yep. And he was being fast tracked to the major leagues. Okay. Like he was, he's six seven lefty pitcher. Everything you can yeah, imagine, right, right. right? Like he's this, and uh, soon though, early on, he got the dreaded uh, torn ulnar nerve in, yep. the, in which is Tommy John surgery. Yeah. 
And then, kind of like Rick Ankeel, remember Rick Ankeel? Uh-huh. He kind of lost. He got the yips. He lost the ability to throw. No, okay. that's important for a pitcher. It right? really is. So you think of guys like Steve Blass or Mackie Sasser from my Mets back in the day, Chuck Knobloch, Rick Ankeel. It's all car- kind of the same thing. The yips, and he talks about in this story about how lonely he was, and like. Eventually, you hit this age where everybody passes you. You're no longer the young guy. Now you're right, the old guy. Right. Uh, and now this guy, uh, Luke Haggerty, is trying to make a comeback at 37 years old. Wow. Um, you know, what's that? I don't know, 15, 20 years after he was originally drafted. Right. Well, when guys his age are normally retiring, he's worked with specialists and psychologists. Wow. And it's kind of coming back. No kidding. But now he's 37. Uh, but he's trying to make a comeback, and it is just a really cool story. Are, are the cards stacked against him? Absolutely. He's yeah. 37 years old. Right. Uh, but now, you know, who which of us don't want him to succeed? This 37-year-old guy who's been through the yips, and he's been through the injuries. He's been that rock bottom, and he's yeah. like, you know what? I'm not going to give up on my dream. I'm wow. going to keep going. Like, there's so much to chew on there, partially yeah. just me going, man, I hope someday I turn on the TV with my son. We're watching a game, and I can be like, hey, bud, do you see that guy pitching? Yeah. 37-year-old rookie because he got hurt, but he fought his way back. Like, this is the thing we want our kids to know. We want to know. Persevere. Hold on to your dream. It's a feel-good story. I'm hoping it ends well for him. Okay, so he- here's the million-dollar question for me, then. How do you know when to keep persevering and when to say, I think my window is passed? Like, you know, the guy who's, you know, 68, still waiting for his band to make it, you know, or like <laughs> at, what, at what point do you, how do you decipher, how do you determine, okay, this is heroic perseverance? Because it's, it's hard because I think we take a lot of our cues from movies yeah. and a lot of times, you know, from the perspective of history, we celebrate this person's perseverance because we know how the story ends. Yep. Yep. So there's probably 10 times as many people who keep persevering when they probably should course correct. How do you, how do you know mm. the difference between the two? Well, this one feels a little different because it's the, I don't know, to put it, not to sound too Hallmark or Disney movie-ish, but it's like his dream, right? It's his dream. And yeah. I think it's to the point that if he doesn't make it, he, he needed to know that he gave it his best shot. Uh, versus like, hey, uh, I want to be, you know, I want to be a world-renowned musician when I can't even hold a beat or I can't even, like, you know, tell music, you know, one note from another. Yeah. Uh, I, I would I would differentiate them in that sense yeah, because he's, he's saying, you know what? My guess is if you got Luke Haggerty into, into a very honest spot, he's going to go, chances are I never pitch in the major leagues. Yeah, right. But this has been a dream of mine, and I've, hard, I've done this hard work to get back here, that this mountain is one that I need to climb. Yeah. To to do something. And so I do think it is, there is something to be said about course correction. You know, like if I'm like, Hey, I want to be a pastor and I want to lead a church and be just dynamic. And I'm like the worst public speaker in the world. <laughs> right, right. Right. I probably need to be honest with myself. Mm. I suspect six months from now, Luke Haggerty is going to be honest with himself and mm. go, Hey man, that was fun. I gave it a try. Right. I'm done now. Um, but man, perse- I, I think I, I read his story as perseverance. Yeah. Um, and, and like, conquering that one last hurdle that has been out there for like 15 years. Well, and even what you were saying too about it might not even be at all for him about pitching in the major leagues, but yep. about doing this thing that his like soul is on fire to do, right? Like not, not to get too pastoral, but you know, the apostle Paul talks about running the race, persevering a lot of this, like more marathon language versus a sprint language. Yeah. And you and I were talking about sometimes the sprint is what's most attractive 
you know, like uh, making a commitment, you know, New Year's resolutions. I'm going to run a marathon. Well, I've never run in my life at all. Or I'm, I'm going to go to the gym four times a day. Like, well, you've never been to the gym once. Like yeah. sometimes thinking of the long game, persevering in the long game can feel a lot less attractive, but is the thing we need to go after. And I think, man, in in quiet time, in our marriages, in fitness and patterns and diets, mm-hmm. like to keep pushing through and, and maybe not – Maybe not all of us will have the opportunity to have to overcome some kind of surgery like that or the yips, but I don't I don't know about you, man. I've definitely felt the tension of having my eye on a prize and then I something legitimate happens that throws me totally off course and then I get discouraged and then you just stop doing it. You yeah. know, like you hurt yourself or you you're you're making a lot of headway in your fitness, but then you like you roll your ankle and so three weeks go by and you're like, ah, maybe that's not that big a deal. Like the idea of persevering amidst heartache and amidst struggle and amidst doubt uh, is so, so important. Not, not simply because it's something that I think we're wired to do, but for what it, what it reveals in us, our ability to power through even when the odds are against us. And to be honest with you, I make it sound like Haggerty has no chance. Like uh, I'm reminded in this story, he went and he pitched for scouts and his 12th pitch was a fastball clocked at 98.5 miles per hour. 37 years old, 37 years old after all of this, uh, he got his average fastball at his pro day registered at ninety six point nine miles an hour. So that also might be part wow. of the answer. That might be part of the answer here for your question because if he had gotten up there and thrown seventy eight, right, right, people have been like, "Hey, nice story, but you know, you're done." He threw ninety eight. You, I might be wrong. You might see this guy on the mound no at Wrigley kidding. this year, right, six seven or next year. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a great. It, it, it at least gives us a guy to cheer on, and it challenges us. Keep chasing your dreams, but like you said, certain times you got to know when to hang them up, know when to fold them, know when to hold them. Right? Right. <laughs> Good uh, reference. But man, I want to, I want to cheer this guy on. Yeah, and I think that we need to be people who cheer people on like that too. That, yeah. that speak life and purpose. Hey, keep going for it. It's worth it, even though times can get discouraging. Sometimes the bottom will drop out, but to keep, keep leaning in, keep showing up. Sort of that long obedience in the same direction, there you right? Go. Like that is that is sort of our catchphrase. It's something. I want my life to be about I think that's important. That's important for us to always kind of have our eye on the prize. Well, as we've been doing, we like to wrap up the show talking about some of the insanity that we found online. Internet insanity, I think is what we're calling it. And so we have some real doozies for you today. We're ready. That's coming up next on The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome to The Common Good. That music always makes me laugh a little bit or a lot of bit. I giggle like a child. The show is all about diving into the mess and the gray, but also sometimes just diving into the crazy. And we like to wrap up every show just sharing a couple of crazy things that we found on the Internet. We'd love for you to share crazy stories. That would be a lot of fun for us. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can also go to 1160hope.com. All the previous shows and podcasts and stuff are there. But to wrap up the show today, we got some doozies. Dan, why don't you, uh, why don't you kick us off, Brian, with some stories that you found? We love to go to England for these. Sure. We love to go to England. Crash driver, he swerved. Remember yesterday or two days ago you did one where there was a swerving to avoid a cat? Yeah. This one in England, crash driver swerved to avoid an octopus. (laughs) A driver who swerved to avoid an octopus before crashing has been arrested on suspicion of drunk driving. They're saying he did not actually swerve. It says octopuses are not unheard of in the seas off the south coast of England, but this particular octopus would have had to crawl more than five kilometers over hills and fields to find itself in the path of the car. They're saying bogus. He did not actually (laughs) swerve. 
But what he told the uh, – he flipped his car, and what he told the police as to why he flipped the car was that he was swerving to avoid an octopus. Okay, so I'm not an octopus expert, but I, I don't think they – Are there octopus They're, they're not nimble, though. They don't move quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Like the idea of having to swerve because one jumped out at you on the road. <laughs> like I just imagine he's racking his brains like, okay, what can I tell him? What can I tell him? Uh, it's an octopus. It's an octopus. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lesson there. <laughs> Just don't lie to the police or drive drunk for that matter. That's true. Uh, this one's out of Texas. I don't think we've done a lot out of Texas. We should. This one's kind of uh, timely for Valentine's Day. Uh, El Paso Zoo will name a cockroach after your ex and feed it to their meerkats. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so not only can you name a cockroach after your ex at the El Paso Zoo, but on Valentine's Day, the That's... zoo will be feeding those cockroaches That's to their meerkats for that. Ready for their quit bugging me event on February 14th. I. Bravo to the marketing team. <laughs> Bravo to the marketing team. And Zeus there. thinking outside the box, man. Rare penny. Rare penny found in cafeteria. So a student, a kid was given a penny uh, as part of like his change that was given to him for his meal. Okay. It turned out to be a rare penny that it is thought at auction is going to sell for close to $200,000. No way. It was a rare 1943 bronze Lincoln scent that was one of the few made with this exact uh, press before it was ac- it was accidental. They didn't mean to make it this way. And it made its hands to the cafeteria, got its hands to a boy, and uh, now they were, they did some research on it, and it could sell for upwards of $200,000. I, I want to know how he knew to even research it. Like, I, I would think it looked weird. Uh, it looked weird enough that it, it stood out to him, you think? These kids on the internet these days. I always take my baseball cards and go on eBay. I'm like, surely this is the one that's going to be worth thousands of dollars. <laughs> they are this not. This Frank Thomas rookie card. And then it's like, you can sell this for $1.25. Okay, so fun fact. When I was a kid, I wrote Frank Thomas. Did you? And he wrote me back. No. It's true. I'm sure it wasn't actually him, but I got a card. I got a signature. And I was I was super pumped that's by that. That's really man. cool. I mean, that was a big deal for me. Well, that, that brings me to my next story here. Babe Ruth card bought for $2 could be worth Millions. Oh, millions. Cal- millions. A California man said the Babe Ruth baseball card that he bought for $2 from a uh, collectible store could turn out to be worth millions upon millions of dollars. That's crazy. It's not a bad investment, right? Where did you say he found it? He found it in California, okay. a, uh, a collectible store, which you think a collectible store yeah, would come know. On, that's like your job <laughs> is to know these things. Yeah, that's not usually a place that you, like, snag a bargain, right? They're the ones that are supposed to know what stuff is worth. Yeah, they're like, hey, yeah, here's just some throwaway cards. Here's this. Here's Some, oh, some guy Babe named Ruth. Ruth. Never heard of him. Yeah, who's this Babe Ruth character? Goodness. George Herman. I don't know. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, this one's in Portland, Oregon, I believe. Burger King accused of reneging on lifetime meals ban to man stuck in bathroom. Oh, boy. A Burger King customer is suing the fast food chain for allegedly reneging on its promise of a lifetime supply of free meals to compensate for enduring more than an hour locked in a foul-smelling bathroom. Wow. After finding himself trapped inside a bathroom at a Burger King in Portland in mid-December, Curtis Bruner used his cell phone to call workers at the fast food restaurant for help. They finally got him out, and uh, they, as like payment, they said, you can have burgers for life. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're reneging on it. Here's my question for you, besides just that being funny and sure. gross and all of it. If you got Burger King for life, yeah. let's just pretend. Let's not even do for life. Let's say for a year. Okay. You got free Burger King for a year. Yes. How many meals would you eat at Burger King? Per day? <laughs> no just, less than three. 
Is there would there come a time in that year where you got sick of Burger King to the point that you stopped taking advantage of the free meals? Absolutely not. Is that no, right? Uh, that has less to do with taste and more me being a uh, tightwad. Yeah. yeah, there's just yeah. no free. Are you kidding me? Free food. I just there's wonder no. if at some point you're like, oh, another burger. But I think I'd at least. So here, sorry, I'm taking us down rabbit trails. <laughs> For some reason, this doesn't happen on my Panera card, and I go there all the time. But my wife's Panera card now twice has gotten this thing on it that for a month you can get a free bagel every day. No kidding. No, and so it's it's really smart of them because now we run uh, – we, we go and we drive past Panera at all times. Like, and she'll be like, can you going to be near Panera? Go get the free bagel, and you go in and get it. But it's crazy. Well, see, and I grew up in a family of nine people, so if it was a free bagel or a free burger, I'd get it and then make croutons out of it or <laughs> chop it up and throw it in an omelet. I would find a way – to make that free food useful. In fact, there used to be a place in Chicago, uh, I think it closed down in the last year or two, called Hot Dogs. Yes. And it was a hot dog place. And if you got a tattoo of the logo, you would get free hot dogs every time you showed it. In fact, I thought about it for a long time in college. I really thought you were about to tell me you got it. No, I didn't. But I wanted to start an initiative to pay for homeless men and women to get this tattoo so that they could go and get free hot dogs whenever they wanted. That's awesome. All right, here's one out of New York. It says, New York City man seen shattering lingerie store window and taking Barack Obama mannequin. (laughs) (laughs) So many questions. That's just not at all how I thought that was going to end. So many questions. The owner of the Romantic Depot located in New York City's Harlem neighborhood released the video (laughs) January 26th of the incident. So apparently this guy really, really, really wanted the mannequin and was going to stop at nothing to get it. My last one, I'm just going to read this one out of Los Angeles. Los Angeles Church says nuns embezzled money from school to cover trips to Vegas. Two nuns who worked at the school embezzled a, quote, substantial amount of money from tuition and other funds to pay for gambling trips to Las Vegas. This has to gone on for as long as 10 years, they said. Both the nuns retired of earlier this year. Neither's been charged with a crime. <laughs> Good for them. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> wow. All right. Last one for me. This is one, uh, Brian, I anticipate will make its way into a sermon at some point. Maybe this weekend. Probably. Here's the headline. A $4 million lottery ticket nearly ended up in the trash. February 7th, the Tennessee lottery scratch-off ticket worth $4 million nearly ended up in the trash when a confused player thought it was worthless. So it's a winning ticket that this person was getting ready to discard and someone noticed and, uh, and thankfully stopped them. And has now redeemed the $4 million. That's outstanding. Good for them, right? Good thing they stopped. Well, it's the weekend, man. What do you got in front of you? It's finally here. What do I have in front of me? Yeah. I'm changing diapers and burping babies, man. That's what, <laughs> that's what I'm doing this weekend. Shoot. Living the dream. What are you doing this weekend? Uh, tonight, the, you, you've got this in your – oh, you have two boys. Hopefully someday you have a daughter. You have this. Tonight is our school's yearly daddy-daughter dance. Oh. It's taking my girl, my fourth-grade girl, to dinner. We get all dressed up. We go to dinner, flowers, all of it, then to the dance. It's all about dad and daughter That's awesome. until you get to the dance. Then all the daughters just go off on their own and dance, and all the dads hang on the side. Do the dads dance, dance, too? Do nope. <laughs> we do, like, two slow dances with our kids total, and then, like, the girls just have a blast, and dads hang on the outside. That's Talk. amazing. Man, daddy-daughter dance, one of my highlights of the year. You'll see it on Facebook. I'll post pictures. Uh, totally looking forward to it. That's tonight. Please do, man. That sounds like a heck of a weekend. I can't wait to hear more about it. Well, this has been The Common Good here on AM 1160. We will see you next week.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.